The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Good morning, Long Island, and welcome to DDI on Autism on 103.9 FM, keeping an eye on autism and giving a voice to its Long Island community. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Romas. Again, so glad that you can join us. This morning, we'll be continuing our conversation with Dr. Tracy King. Dr. Tracy King, you may remember, is a medical officer in the Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities Branch at the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. Again, you know, you know, Dr. King, I seem to say it every time I introduce you that it's a bit of a mouthful, but how could it not be? You have done a lot of, a lot of really good work with enormous background. Uh, for listeners who were here uh, with us last week or might be coming on board, we were talking uh, about some of the uh, challenges and impediments around representing different communities when it comes to real science uh, and, and, and research. So uh, maybe, you know, uh, uh, Dr. King, we could start by kind of like where we left off with some of those challenges. We talked a little bit about accessibility, not surprisingly, we have to be close enough to research, uh, research opportunities and uh, some conditions being extremely, extremely rare. Uh, rare. And then what our sensibility, what our awareness is around those uh, needs might or may not be. So maybe you could speak to that a little bit more, please. Again, thanks so much for having me. Um, and thanks for the question. I think, you know, I know that there has been a lot more recognition in recent years about how better representation and better inclusion in in healthcare and in research is a critical social justice issue. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. But I think it's not only a social justice issue. I I think that when we and when I say we, I mean the research community, you know, the folks that uh, we fund uh, to do NIH sponsored research, uh, when the research community does a better job of including the entire range of folks who might have a particular condition, you know, whether it's autism, whether it's IDD, whether it's a rare uh, genetic condition that uh, is associated with autism, for example, we do better science because uh, we're looking at a bigger range of folks with a condition and not just a selected subset of folks with a condition. And I think that's really important because when we look at, you know, behavioral interventions or promising drug treatments, I think we're in a position now where we can do a better job of trying to understand whether there are other factors that influence whether or not a specific treatment works for a specific person, whether that's a genetic condition or um, or a social environment issue or um, something else. And the wider the range of folks that we can include in our research, 
the more opportunity we'll have to unpack those details and to understand, um, you know, which interventions work best for which patients um, or which people and which families. And the idea that we'll be able to do that is really exciting. Yeah, it sure is. And I'm, I'm kind of glad that you drew a kind of a, an initially like a distinction between, say, good science as, as a reason for this, this consideration, as well as social justice, of course, because it seems like there's a reciprocity. In other words, social justice at best would lend itself to good research, and good research would also lend itself to social justice. So it's almost like they, and you pointed this out, there's a real link between uh, between the two issues that really becomes a good argument for, for addressing addressing this. You know, circling back to the idea of rare conditions being underrepresented, I didn't expect to ask you this, but in your observation, as a doctor, do certain conditions or maladies strike you as being especially underrepresented? Um, as you hinted before, I think the more rare a condition is, I think the more we see that it's harder to capture a range. And some of it is just knowledge. I think some conditions are so rare that we don't know what all of the variations of what it looks like might be. Um, we don't know if it might look different in people um, of different ages or different situations. But also the more rare a condition is, I think the more steps an individual and a family have to go through to get to that diagnosis. And the greater chance there is that that someone may never get that diagnosis. So if you're talking about, you know, a genetic mutation that that only a handful of people in the world have been recognized as having, um, there are many doctors and clinics that wouldn't even know to order certain tests or to make certain referrals. And so I think there's barriers at many levels. There's barriers at getting to a, a, a doctor in, or a healthcare provider in the first place to even wonder if there is a condition. And then that healthcare provider has to think about ordering the right tests or making the right referrals. Um, and in this age, when some of these tests are so specialized, it's, I'll, I'll say as a primary care provider, it's very hard to keep up with the, uh, with the very specialized, very rare knowledge, because you're seeing so many different patients with so many different conditions and so many different situations. And then once someone gets the right referral, uh, then you actually have to get to the clinic, you have to get to the lab, you, you might have to get to, you know, a special MRI or a, any a, another kind of specialized study. Um, and then you have to get the results. And then those results have to get to the right person. It's a, there are a lot of steps in the process. And um, it's a lot to keep track of. It's a lot to keep track of for any family. And I think it's it can be particularly daunting for people who just may not have as much time or as much uh, flexibility in their schedules 
as needed to make that process work for whatever reason it might be. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I have no doubt in this. As we talk a little bit about some of the dynamics of this and what goes on, it, it seems really clear that this may never be as formulaic as we'd like it to be. Right? I mean, you think about something that might be extremely rare, but also extremely serious in a marginalized community. So that's one, yeah. right? That's one possibility of absolutely. Uh, and then a million other permutations of that. So are you finding, Doctor, that because of that, because there are so many ways of, of this could present itself, that you have to, or, or, or clinicians and researchers will have to kind of, as much as they will try to create a profile or, or, or assessment, they'll still have that work of looking at each particular presentation. Does, does that resonate with you? Is that something that you're finding too? Oh, absolutely. It is critical, but it is challenging, right? There's just so much information out there and so uh, many expectations for clinicians to be experts in conditions that are um, increasingly rare. So it is absolutely, I think, something that we think that having a person uh, with clinical expertise and um, decision-making and access to referrals is really important, but it is hard. It is hard. And I, it, it is hard. I have no doubt about it. And one of the, one of the uh, and I give you credit for this, that I, I feel you are really sensitive to, is how you, on one level, you have to work with small groups and individuals while trying to draw larger conclusions about whole communities, uh, do, doing both at the at the same time yeah. to look at variation as well. So this gets a little dicey, a little dicey. And let's stay there. You know, we have, uh, let's stay there. We're going to go for a, uh, a break. And then when we come back, Dr. King, I'd love to ask you a little bit. I bet our listeners will be interested as well to how you got into this particular area of inquiry. Because uh, you come across with a, a, you know, a real passion. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, if, if you will, about you know, your personal connection with uh, this area. So uh, stay with us. We'll continue our conversation with Dr. Tracy King. You're listening to DDI Autism on 103.9 FM, keeping an eye on autism and giving a voice to its Long Island community. Continue my conversation with Dr. Tracy King and the importance of moving the dial around inclusion and diversity and equity when it comes to uh, you know, when it comes to research. And right where we left off, uh, Dr. King, I was going a little bit more personal in the whole research thing. <laughs> and I wanted, not too personal, I just really thought it'd be interesting to know a little bit more about what captured your interest here. You, have, you, know, you bring such a passion to this and where that might be coming from. And uh, yeah, just a little bit about you and this connection. Thanks very much for the question. You know, I came to this position of of being at NIH and uh, working in the intellectual and developmental disability research space, um, as I mentioned before, from a primary care background. And 
specifically, my position was working in a teaching hospital, doing primary care in a minoritized, low-resource community. And I was really fortunate to um, be surrounded by colleagues who were really thinking deeply about uh, health equity and health disparities, I think long before it was as widely recognized an issue as it is now. And that was really, I think, the space where I grew up, so to speak, um, clinically and academically, was really thinking about more about the how social determinants of health uh, really influence uh, people's access to care, people's health outcomes, people's interactions with with the healthcare system, uh, people's interactions with the research enterprise. And so for me, it was really natural to to bring that perspective to um, to my position at NIHD, uh, where much of the research we fund is, as we said before, about um, very specific conditions, sometimes very rare conditions. And I think I, in thinking about the research we fund, have sometimes thought back to my own experiences as a primary care pediatrician, where I might have made an assumption, right or wrong, whether a family could actually follow through with multiple referrals or multiple tests. And I can think of at least a few situations where I specifically said to myself, you know what, I'm going to refer this family for, you know, speech therapy or a special education evaluation uh, or other kinds of testing. And I'm going to prioritize that in how I describe uh, a situation to a family than uh, genetic testing, because I know that the wait to get into genetic clinic is very long. And, you know, that I think that another referral might get answers for a family faster. And I don't know if those assumptions were fair or not. I wonder sometimes if I played a role in preventing a family from getting a diagnosis or getting access to research based on a diagnosis because of the decisions that I made as a pediatrician. And so it's it's interesting to see it from this side. It's interesting to see it from the research side where if I, you know, if I'm talking, for example, about uh, a research project on fragile X syndrome, uh, a family won't have access or won't even know that that it's relevant if they themselves haven't gotten a diagnosis of Fragile syndrome or any uh, rare genetic diagnosis. So mm-hmm. I think that's that's the personal piece that I bring from my previous phases of life. When, you know, when you were talking a little bit about the the uh, the danger, we didn't put it quite this way, but the danger of how assumptions can get in the way of some of the safeguards that have to be put in place. Uh, or some of the work that has to be done to make sure the assumptions are indeed worth keeping. In some ways, you're really defining the very the very reason for research, so that there can be uh, empiricism under it. So that there, it's based on something more than the assumptions than assumptions. And I was thinking too, you know, how 
sometimes we want outcomes, good outcomes, so badly that it can color our approach a little bit. You know, during the the the, the break, we talked just for a moment a little bit about the 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 issue of trust as well, uh, trust in processes, trust in approaches, such and or the lack of. Uh, maybe we should just kind of go back there a little a little. But uh, Dr. King, why is the issue of trust uh, so important to this conversation? Uh, thanks so much for the question. I think trust is critical, and trust is something that I think we in the research community have not always recognized as influencing a family's decision about whether or not to participate in research, or maybe even whether or not to undergo testing for a condition. I think, sadly, history is filled with examples about how research has failed research participants or has or researchers have done things that have been unethical. Um, and so I think there are many communities that have enormous justification for not trusting the research enterprise and maybe not even trusting healthcare systems. And I think we in the research community have a real obligation to not just write it off, but to really do a better job of understanding where some of these trust or mistrust issues come from and uh, better understand what research questions matter most to people who have lived experiences with these conditions or people who are affected by these conditions and not just the questions um, that are of most interest to the researchers. Um, sometimes there's terrific overlap and an alignment of those interests and sometimes there's not. And I think there's on one hand, lots of room for improvement. Um, and yet I think uh, reason to be optimistic because a lot of folks are recognizing that these are issues that need to be addressed and um, and that we need to bring the right partners in uh, to our research efforts to better identify and figure out how to address them. What's the What's the next big step? Where, you know, where Where does this go next? Uh, yeah, you know, where do you see this going? Because it sounds like the dial is moving in the right direction. What still needs to be done? <laughs> so how much time do you have in your radio <laughs> show? <laughs> that, that really was a loaded question and a very good reason for me to have you back. You know that, right? But, <laughs> yeah, you know, you, I, and, I, and I realized how big that was, but just, just kind of like the nature of if you were to give me just a very short, what would you love to see happen next? What should happen? to make this explode, to really move in the right direction? I mean, this may seem like a little bit of a cop-out, but I think the answer is that we can't just think about equity at one level, at the level of the researcher or the level of the doctor. But I think that it is really something that we need to be thinking about at all levels, that um, researchers, clinicians, uh, advocates, family members, individuals themselves, I think, having these conversations at all of these levels and making sure that all of these perspectives are represented when we're having these conversations is going to be incredibly valuable and it's going to and that this combination of perspectives is going to be key in helping us to 
identify and address uh, these issues of uh, accessibility and equity um, far more than just acting at one level or doing them uh, in sequence or doing them one at a time. No, not a, not a cop-out at all. In fact, it really uh, underscores the kind of work you're doing and the article that you wrote, which you know, at the end of the day is all about awareness, like kind of really spreading this so there is that understanding and greater attention uh, to everything that we've kind of put forth in, in our conversation. So no, not, not a cop-out, but a ton of work ahead of us. And as I said, Dr. Kane, a, a good reason for us to come, come to the table again and see where we are in the not too distant uh, future. So I just want to thank you. you know, thank you for making this time such important work and we'll go a long way towards helping uh, well, not helping, but ensuring that NIH is a stand-bearer around this critical, critical issue. So, thank you for your time. Thank you again for having me. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.